You've tuned in to Chaos to the Fly, a podcast for fans of the darkness and the supernatural by Greg Newby. If you'd like to reach out to provide feedback or say hello, send an email to info at chaostothefly.com or if you'd like to share an experience, send the details to stories at chaostothefly.com and it might be included on future episodes. Now, let's get down to business, shall we? G'day friendly flies and welcome to episode 15, the final episode of season 1 of Chaos to the Fly. Thank you so much for sticking with me to this very final episode and hopefully it will all have been worthwhile. I think it has for me. I have enjoyed every last second of this project and I hope you have too. And I look forward to how things may progress into season two, although I haven't decided on a starting date for that as yet. Things may slow me down a little bit with regards to coronavirus, so we'll see how that goes. It was planned for around October, but that date may be difficult to achieve. We'll see how we go, but I will keep you up to date on my Facebook page. Search for Chaos to the Fly on Facebook and I'm sure you'll find it. And, of course, on Twitter, Chaos to the Fly. It could even be called Chaos to the Fly Pod. But again, search for Chaos to the Fly. You will absolutely find me there. And follow. Of course, just stay subscribed to this particular podcast and you'll be notified when Season 2 goes live. Anyway, last week, what did we talk about? We had... A big section on the devil, which was a lot of fun to look into, just like today's was actually. Uh, we had a ghost in the cabin, which was really kind of scary. And I gave you two reviews, simply because I felt bad for skipping a week uh, in episode 14. Now, I am much better. I did have a, a COVID-19 test last week, and I have come back negative, which is absolutely fantastic. So I'm on top of the world until... The next level of restrictions happen again in Melbourne, but that's life. Again, as I mentioned last week, we will have two reviews, so look forward to that. We have a really different kind of ghost story today. It's not a ghost story at all, so we'll look into that when time comes. But up first, we're talking about ghosts and the history of the belief in ghosts. So let's crack on into that, and I will see you on the other side. Ghosts. Whether you're a believer or not, they seem to be intrinsic in modern society, regardless of race or creed. You can hardly turn on the TV these days without coming across a series focused on paranormal investigations, whether it's documentary or otherwise. And YouTube? YouTube's chock full of self-styled ghost hunters and their experience in so-called haunted houses with disembodied voices, doors opening and closing on their own, and spooky happenings as a result of common tools of the trade such as EVP detectors and Ouija boards. All of this put over to the side, so many individuals across the globe seem to have had some kind of paranormal experience, a few of which have been documented in this very podcast. Sadly though, science doesn't seem to support any of these claims, but equally, science doesn't seem to want to investigate these claims either, waving them off as woo, 
and putting focus elsewhere. However, it's hard to dismiss so much anecdotal evidence, and if even one of these stories, YouTube videos, or paranormal experiences just happens to be true, then what does that say for the rest of them? In today's episode, we're going to take a brief dive into ghosts throughout history, but first, we'll have a look at what the skeptics have to say. Firstly, of course, paranormal experiences are often subjective. That is, those that have the experience often describe feelings and temperature changes, and skeptics often associate this with suggestion and auto-suggestion. That is, if someone tells you that a place is haunted, or if you simply believe that a place is haunted, your body and mind are primed to experience something, and so you will experience things that may or may not truly occur. In one study, two groups of individuals were allowed to roam an empty building. One group was told it was under renovation, and the other was told it was haunted. Only the group that was told it was haunted experienced anything paranormal. Other explanations come down to electromagnetic fields and infrasound, which are sound waves beyond the range of human hearing. Certain areas with erratic sources of such can induce unnatural feelings, hair standing on end for example, temperature changes, chills, and so on. It is important to note that many believers feel that paranormal entities themselves give off electromagnetic waves, and they carry tools to detect these within haunted environments. Other skeptics believe that old locations may also be sources of other, more natural, but equally toxic gases, and that breathing these fumes can induce hallucinations. These natural causes can also be attributed to strange occurrences, changes in humidity or drafts causing doors to slam for example, or reflections of lights in windows causing the shadows to dance, and so on. And of course experiences that happen at night, in bed, can often be dismissed as being a kind of waking dream. For this reason, those that experience sleep paralysis are often dismissed outright, as it is believed that hallucination, both good and bad, is common during these experiences. Now, skeptics aside, how long has humanity believed in ghosts? Whether as the spirits of gods or ancestors or demons, whatever, how long has humanity feared these kinds of paranormal experiences? In truth, the fear of ghosts and the belief that the souls of the dead persist in some way seems to have always existed. Where it perhaps exploded in the Middle Ages, possibly based on the more modern religious structures, some form of belief has always existed, and for the most part, it's likely based on the mystery of death. Death has existed since time immemorial, and yet the mystery of life and death, and especially what happens afterwards, has remained a mystery throughout time. And given there seems to be no answers coming soon, our fear of death will likely stick with us for time to come. So let's look into it, shall we? To tell this story, we again need to go back to historical record, and of course we start at ancient Mesopotamia. While there were older cultures, this is really the beginning of record, so the beliefs and fears of older cultures have been lost to time. The ancient Mesopotamians believed in an underworld they called the Okala, to which souls of all departed would descend, and from which no soul could depart. However, they also believed that certain souls those that had some kind of mission left to complete on Earth, would receive special permission to appear to those still on Earth, if this was seen as part of their mission. However, these ghosts would not appear as apparitions, but more as disease within relatives, 
and doctors of the time would have sufferers confess their sins in order to release the ghosts. However, there was also a belief in spectral ghosts. These were entities that were not given the proper funerary rites and thus were unable to find their way to the Akala. The Egyptians, on the other hand, believed that only good souls passed into the afterlife and that the afterlife would mirror the soul's favourite places and things on earth, leaving them no reason to wish to return. Again though, if the proper burial rites were ignored, part of the soul was seen to have permission to go back and make things right. The ancient Greco-Roman folk, as you may well be aware, used to put coins on the eyes of their loved ones at burial. These coins were to pay the toll for their ferry over the river Styx, or at least it was meant to represent that as part of the burial rites. After crossing, the soul would then be judged, but again, no soul would be allowed to go back to the land of the living. However, some did, and ancient Romans believed that you could not actually see a ghost unless it was in some sort of light, such as the light of a torch. Several stories told in ancient Rome include references to ghosts, among the most famous being recorded by Pliny the Younger, with perhaps the first tale of a haunted house and the goings-on within. Ghosts also appear in Homer's Odyssey and Iliad, which were realistically possibly the first references in literature. The ancient Chinese also believed that those that died in suffering or were unburied would also appear, but only at night and again by torchlight. It's interesting that such a specific belief was held by two cultures existing so far away from one another, but of course it should be noted that these cultures did trade via the Silk Road, so perhaps some culture was shared. In addition, the Chinese believed that the spirits of those that had some information to share, whether it was a warning or more positive information, these ghosts would appear in a dream. In ancient India, ghosts would come about when a person died before their time. They would appear as spirits of people with backwards feet, which symbolized that something had gone wrong. These were a kind of hungry ghost, whose appearance back on Earth was in order to fulfill the lives that they'd lost by possessing someone else. For fear of such ghosts actually possessing their own dead body, this saw the now common practice of cremation in India. Given the age of the Indian culture, there are many such ghosts, most of whom are angry at their untimely death. In fact, Ghosts are so ingrained in the culture, from what I've read, that whole areas are believed to be inhabited by ghosts and can remain that way for hundreds of years. This includes Bangar Fort in Rajasthan, which remains an abandoned city to this day, as it's feared to be a true ghost town. And, if I'm honest, I could probably go on and on in regards to ghosts in ancient and modern culture, even in Mesoamerican tribes such as the Aztecs, the belief in and worship of ghosts and spirits, or perhaps I should say fear of ghosts and spirits, have led to the modern day celebration of the Day of the Dead, which is a day to honour those that have passed. Or perhaps you've heard of the pagan celebration of Samhain, which is held on the same day, and that it too was in worship of the God of the Dead. Well, if that's the case, you'd be wrong, as this was the Christian reinterpretation of the pagan celebration. In Old Celtic, Samhain simply meant summer's end, and there was no worshipping of the god of death. Anyway, the idea that ghosts and the spirits of the dead exist deeply pervades modern culture, regardless of where the truth may lie. And while I may not have experienced anything overly specific in my lifetime, and I tend towards the sceptical, part of me marvels at the stories that others have told over the years, and indeed within this very podcast. 
and as the protagonist of my favourite TV show of the 90s once expounded, I want to believe. Okay, he was referring to UFOs, but you get the drift. I want to believe in those too. Today's story is titled The Sighting of the Black Dog. This one comes to us from the Ghost Stories subreddit from the user The Glowacus. And I have essentially left this verbatim as it was quite well written. Thank you to The Glowacus for allowing us to share. In Meriden, Connecticut, about 40 minutes outside of where I live, there exists a range of mountainous trap rock ridges called the Hanging Hills. The easiest way to get to them is to park in a wooded, mountainous park known as Hubbard Park and take a trail that starts with a slightly intimidating passenger bridge that crosses over the highway. I am afraid of heights, but I always try to challenge myself by going hiking and putting myself in slightly uncomfortable situations in order to overcome my fears. In the spring of 2014, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and I decided to take our umpteenth hike up Hanging Hills to see Castle Craig, a stone tower that stood at the end of the main trail and overlooked the cliffs, as well as the city of Meriden and Quinnipiac Valley. For the umpteenth time, we launched into a discussion on the drive there about the legend of the Black Dog. I find ghost stories that have any shred of historical reality to them intriguing because most representations of ghosts on TV or YouTube these days involve people becoming easily scared by shaking or noises in an abandoned location. The Legend of the Black Dog is an exception because it involves the legend itself and involves the story of two geologists from the late 1800s encountering and actually documenting it. The legend has that you see the Black Dog of Hanging Hills once for joy, twice for sorrow, and three times for death. There are plenty of legends of black dogs in folklore that tell a similar tale. The two geologists, W.H.C. Pinchon and Herbert Marshall, were conducting research of the area in winter of 1891 when they encountered the black dog. According to the story, Pinchon had seen it once before, and Herbert twice before. Herbert didn't believe in the legend. But after ascending the hills again alone, he supposedly fell to his death. The story was published by Pinchon in the Connecticut Quarterly. I remember the image of the black dog from WHC Pinchon's story very clearly every time we hiked up the mountain. This time was no different. That particular day, my girlfriend and I encountered a hiker on the trail that was letting his black dog roam loose without a collar. We weren't sure whether it was to mess with people or not. This dog wasn't little like the one depicted in Pinchon's story though, rather it was much larger like a lab terrier mix and pretty friendly too. It came up to us and started panting at our legs. Sorry about that, the hiker said as he caught up to the dog. Oh, not at all. I bet you love having a little legend with you around here. Oh yeah, the ghost dog, the hiker said, forcing a laugh and grimacing as if he'd heard that one way too many times before. As he walked away, my girlfriend made a comment about my obsession with the stupid dog and not wanting to hear about it. We made our way to Castle Craig about 20 minutes later. Unlike the trails off the highway, the main trail from the park is not long or difficult, other than a large hill at the end of it. We took pictures on top of the tower and by the cliffside, not really thinking any more about the black dog. We'd made so many trips up to the tower and seen so many hikers with black dogs, 
but the legend almost seemed like a joke at this point. I asked my girlfriend if she wanted to take the main trail back down, or if she wanted to use the road. I asked her this as we finished up taking pictures and drinking whatever water and Gatorade we had left in the packs. She insisted on the road because we could see the river that way. The road leading up to Castle Craig is typically taken by cars and bikers. We sometimes hiked down it to catch a glimpse of the Quinnipiac River on the way back to the park. Despite it being a warm April day, there were actually very few cars and bikers on the way down. It was nice and quiet. About a quarter of a mile into our walk, my girlfriend tugged me on the shoulder and pointed to a figure on the side of the road between some shrubbery. It stood about 10 feet ahead of us. What the hell is that? She said. I took a step forward, but she tugged on my shirt and shook her head. Is that what I... Th I nodded. All I could do was nod. The figure was small and resembled a black dog with floppy ears and a hot dog tail, much like the one in Pinchon's illustration. I wouldn't have thought much of it if not for the fact that the figure was kind of blurry. It wasn't the distance between us that made it blurry, and there wasn't any fog-related conditions on the day. It was almost as if Mother Nature had taken the dog in a Photoshop program and used the blur effect on it. Even when I took a step closer to my girlfriend's hesitance, it still looked blurry. We were frozen otherwise, though, and didn't think to take a picture of the figure. There was an unknowing understanding between us that we shouldn't approach and just wait for it to cross. As the figure crossed the road, it didn't look at us. It just dawdled with its nose to the ground. For the rest of the hike, we were silent. We both knew what we saw, but we couldn't put it to words. It was only after a while that I said I should have taken a picture, but deep down, I felt it was a good thing that I didn't. Seeing the figure wasn't frightening, but it wasn't pleasant either. We have been back to Hanging Hills many times since. We've never encountered any luck or sorrow, just a memory of a little blurry black dog and an understanding that when you see an actual paranormal entity with someone else and understand what it is, there isn't really a question about it. I've read many stories posted online since about the black dog. Few have described what we saw though. Black dogs run loose in the park all the time and a number of the encounters we read seem like fabrications or just encounters with stray black dogs. If you live in the area or have a similar story, I'd really be interested in hearing yours as well. I haven't met or spoken with a person who has had a similar experience. I also haven't been able to objectively rule out what I saw. I'm also open to any scientific explanations as to collectively seeing blurry figures in a shared experience. It would be disappointing but interesting to know a more logical explanation too. If you do have some sort of explanation, you can share it with the Gloacus on Reddit or send an email to me at info at chaostothefly.com and I'll ensure he gets it. The first review today is of Season 1 of Warrior Nun, which is a Netflix series currently available on Netflix, obviously. To be honest, possibly the worst thing about Warrior Nun is the name. It's really tacky, and it's the main reason I avoid watching it until I had nothing else on my plate. It sounds like something 15-year-old me would have titled, thinking I was on a winner. However, the concept of it at all is actually really damn cool. The story is focused on a secret sect of nuns that are highly trained in both hand-to-hand -hand and projectile weaponry. Not only this, but they have 
badass uniforms and are kind of just badass in general. These nuns are tasked with finding and defeating demons that occasionally enter the real world. However, they, they, they're not the titular warrior nun. No, there can only be one, you see. The warrior nun is infused with heavenly power by a halo that was bequeathed upon them in centuries past. As the halo bearer dies, it's passed on to the next in line, and so on throughout the centuries. The series starts with the death of a halo bearer, but due to the poor timing of her demise, the halo doesn't make it to its intended target. It's placed within the body of a recently deceased orphan, for safekeeping, of course. However, there are unforeseen circumstances. Namely, the halo actually revives the dead girl, which is something it was not known to have been able to do in the past. This leads those in charge to perhaps think that she was chosen by the halo, and should be trained as the new warrior nun. In my opinion, this is a pretty cool setup, with potential for some intense and hardcore battles, but the main problem here is that this is the story of a chosen one. A reluctant chosen one. Someone who didn't want this, or ask for this. Now, I've seen plenty of reviews that have hated on Warrior Nun for this reason alone, and in some ways, they are right. However, too many reviewers out there seem to think that the Chosen One idea has been played out and is unoriginal. I disagree. I do agree that it can be poorly implemented, but in the case where someone is a badass nun with superpowers, perhaps the only way to make them relatable is to utilise the old trope of a Chosen One. The problem here, then, is the storytelling. For more than half of the season, the Chosen One is simply trying to find out who she is and what she wants to do with her life, for reasons that are kind of spoilery. Fair enough, and I can understand that this would be the case if I was a warrior nun all of a sudden, (laughs) but it doesn't really make for really enjoyable viewing. In fact, the first half of the season is pretty dull in my opinion, especially given the rest of the group of nuns have really strong characters and you really just want to see more of them. And even when she does decide to join her sisters, I'm not sure if you could see my inverted commas, the story follows a somewhat bland path of church politics and evil corporations with seemingly malicious intent, rather than just pitting the nuns against a bunch of demons, which is what viewers really wanted to see. However, by the time the series ends, it all comes together really nicely, even if still somewhat a little disappointing. Season 1 is, when you when you sit back and have a look at it, it's entirely designed to introduce viewers to the whole backstory of the nuns, and then to subsequently tear their world apart. Without spoiling too much, of course. In some ways, it feels like a prequel to the season that we all actually want to see, and that's what season two looks like it will be, and that makes me excited. I do have one major complaint, though. It does leave certain things completely unresolved. That may well be all well and good for a lengthy story arc, but when you don't know who lives or dies, it's just frustrating. I'm still pretty damn primed for season two. And if you sit down and watch season one as a kind of prologue to something awesome, you might have a better response to it. In the end, I really enjoyed it overall, but just keep in mind that the first half can be a bit of a slog. 
the second review is of a movie released in 2018 called Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage. Holy shit. There's not much else I can say. There's my review. Okay, not really. But if there ever was a film that was absolutely made for Nicolas Cage to just release the Cage demons within, <laughs> then this is it. And even better, his well-known ability to overplay his emotions and really chew the goddamn scenery, it works here so well. You really feel his emotions and you understand exactly why he seems to have lost his mind. And that's partly because the whole movie turns everything up to 11 and then keeps going. Mandy tells the story of a couple. This is Cage's character Red and his partner Mandy, obviously. And they're living in a mountain cabin somewhere in the Shadow Mountains in California. They live a simple, happy life until Mandy is spotted by the children of the dawn. Who are they, you may ask? Well, think Charlie Manson, but even more perverted, if that's possible. Depends on how much you know about Charlie Manson, I guess. Maybe cross Charlie Manson with Rob Zombie's characters. There you go. The leader of the cult, Jeremiah Sands, he immediately falls for Mandy, and he absolutely must have her. As a result, the cult then calls upon a cult of a very different kind, a group of completely fucked up bikers known as the Black Skulls. However, they are not your usual biker gang. In this case, they very closely resemble the Cenobites from Hellraiser on motorbikes. And yes, this is exactly as cool as you are picturing it in your mind. Probably cooler. With their help, the Children of the New Dawn kidnap Mandy and try to integrate her into their cult. Things go badly, and they end up burning her alive in front of Red. And the rest of the movie involves Red's revenge. <laughs> I don't want to spoil any of it, because you simply have to watch it. Have to. You should be watching it already. It's a very simple storyline, but it's not a simple place. It's not really reality as we know it, even though it kind of looks like it. In some ways, it looks and feels, again, like a Rob Zombie film. It's kind of grainy and lo-fi at times. It's set in the 1980s, but in other ways, it feels like a real bad acid trip. No, actually, it's worse. It feels like a DMT trip gone wrong. It looks like it's a look into the mind of the Elder Gods. It feels Lovecraftian without even being Lovecraftian, and it feels... It feels real, even in the face of its all, all of its unrealism, if you know what I mean. A lot of that has to do with the music, and the use of colour, imagery, and cinematography, and a lot of it has to do with the minimalist use of dialogue. In fact, everything seems to have been meticulously planned to create a kind of ritual. This movie feels like a ritual. If it hasn't twigged in you yet, I am absolutely infatuated with this film. It's, in, it's exactly the kind of batshit insane that I love, and exactly the kind of twisted reality that I wish I could write. But sadly, I know that I cannot. 
I know where my limits lie. It's violent, it's weird, it's completely out of this world, but it is an absolute must-watch for anyone that enjoys horror, and I'd even go as far as say anyone that enjoys movies and can tolerate horror absolutely has to see this movie. If this doesn't have a cult following already, then there's something wrong with humanity. And that's that. That's episode 15. Possibly the longest episode that I have done. And hopefully the best, because I'd love to end on a winner for season one. I had decided to talk about ghosts last week. And if you remember at the end of last week's episode, I said, oh, I think I know what I'm doing, but I'm not going to promise you it was ghosts. I just didn't know whether I was going to look into the history of ghost stories or the history of ghosts themselves. And it just played out that ghosts themselves felt more interesting. Um, Plus, I've sort of been more of a historical kind of guy throughout this whole season anyway. So I wanted to reflect that in the final episode as well. The sighting of the black dog came to me at the same time as the ghost story that I got last week. And I was looking at them both. I knew they both would be really good, but I decided to put this one into the last episode because it is really different. And I wanted this uh, final episode to be really different. So here we are, different, yay. It's not really a ghost story. It is a sighting of something uh, and it's spooky. And it's a little bit of a a folk tale uh, and a local one at that. So I really enjoyed telling that story. Now, the warrior nun I wanted to do last week with the order. It would have been perfect to have done with the devil. But um, still fits really well into this episode because it's uh, actually a pretty good show to watch. Uh, So I recommend you watch that one. And Mandy, I have had a friend in uh, Discord, Mothop, you know who you are because you're Mothop, telling me to watch this movie for several months now. And I put it off and off and off. And as soon as I started watching it, I think I was 15 minutes into the movie and I knew I was entranced and I was kicking myself for not watching it sooner. So absolutely a must watch. If that didn't come across in my review, you have to watch it. Go watch it now. So that sort of wraps up the why I chose this week. I also started watching a couple of other shows, a couple of other TV series this week that I was interested in over the last few months and finally had a chance to catch up to. One of those was October Faction and the other one is Umbrella Academy. That's it. Now, they both have similar stories. They're, well, not really. One tells the story of a couple that are in a secret organization that kills monsters and the other tells of a family of kids with superpowers that sort of fell apart over the years and get together again to sort of try and stop the end of the world. So it's not really the same kind of storyline at all, but they feel similar in some way, and I can't even explain why. I I went into this expecting October Faction to be better, but Umbrella Academy is better by leaps and bounds. Uh, October Faction is so-so. Uh, It's not too bad. It depends on what you're interested in. It feels a little bit more like Men in Black than anything else. Uh, It's up to you as to whether or not you wanted to watch them. I just thought I'd give you a couple of bonus reviews because I'm not sure I'll ever be able to get around to them by the time I do season two. We may have a whole bunch of other stuff that I need to review. So just thought I'd quickly 
give you an overview of those. Now, I'm not going to end with a topic this week uh, or a secret, or maybe I will end with a secret if I think of one while I'm talking. I just thought I would talk about my experience over the last three months, is it? It's about that. It's been a lot of work, but it's been really fun and interesting. What it has meant, though, is I haven't had a chance to write my book. So you may remember that I am writing a book, have been for some time, and I really expected to have finished writing it by the end of June. But most of my writing efforts were going into preparing for this show show rather than finishing my book. So it will be good over the next couple of months to put that effort back into the book, and I should be finished within hoping within a month or two, because I am close to the end already. So I'm looking forward to finally being able to edit that book and maybe one day even getting it uh, into the hands of the public. But that's that's still six to 12 months away because there's a lot of work that still needs to be done on it. Uh, but keep an eye out for that. We'll see how we go. I do have a few other ideas. I've got an idea for a sci-fi, but it's a little bit too epic if you know what I mean and I really need to build up the history and the story before I can start working on that because I think it's easy to have an idea for sci-fi but even easier to get it wrong so I think that'll take me a while to write but it's good to have lots of ideas which means that if I ever do get a chance to write properly there's there's hopefully a future in me releasing books whether they do well or not I feel that's who I am. I'd like to write. So thank you for sticking around with me for 15 episodes of Chaos to the Fly in Season 1. Keep an eye out for Season 2. And please do look up my name, Greg Newbegin. I will probably publish under my full name, Gregory Newbegin, because it sounds more awfully, in my opinion. If you think I'm dumb or wrong, hit me up and let me know. Because, hey, I'm just another human after all, and we all make stupid mistakes. Thank you. Again, I don't know what else to say. Continue with the likes and subscribes and reviews. That will help the show continue to grow. The more it grows, the more I will be pumped to make season two ten times better instead of just twice as good. <laughs> so we'll see how we go. Thanks again. Keep an eye out. See you next time. Chaos to the Fly might mostly be my little project, but it couldn't be what it is without the help of some key individuals and resources. So I'd like to thank the following. Thanks to Simon Exley for his brilliant music-making skills, providing all music used in the show. You can look for his work at inexilerecords.bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Mr. Mr. Yarn for his glorious voice work, which you can hear in the intro and outro. You can find him at disco underscore box on Twitter. And last but not least... Thank you to Simon Sherry, who provided the excellent artwork for the show, including our spooky mascot. Follow Simon at Simon Sherry on Twitter. Before I go, however, I should mention that the sound effects were obtained from Zapsplat.com. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at Mad Capsules on Twitter. Thanks for listening to another episode of Chaos to the Fly. It would really help if you could leave us a review on iTunes or simply share the podcast with others you feel may be interested. To keep the spooky conversation going, follow us at Chaos to the Fly on Twitter and Facebook. Back to work, flies. <laughs>